Hey guys, Abel here with the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast. And in this episode, I'm bringing you JC Dean from jcdfitness.com. He is uh, one of those guys in the fitness industry who don't make a ton of noise all the time. They're kind of in the background, but they have been running very major fitness platforms for ages. I actually recorded this episode a long time ago, which I'm ashamed to say, but something rather unfortunate happened, which is that the computer that contained the audio got broken and it took a rather long time to get it fixed. So I'm glad that I could bring you this episode finally. So what you'll hear in this interview is a cool and interesting discussion about the mind games that one has to go through during fat loss phases and the best ways to tackle them, as well as something that JC coined the fat boy syndrome, which is about guys who were once fat in their lives or just fatter than they wanted to be and now have a hard time committing to building muscle because of their fear of getting fat again. So if these topics sound interesting to you, then you'll like this episode, I promise. And a short plug, which I'll keep under 30 seconds, Join the Sustainable Self-Development Facebook community at facebook.com slash groups slash sustainable self-development and check out our SSD nutrition and training course, which encompasses the legacy and experience gathered over many, many years and coaching thousands of clients by strength coach Berge Fagerli at sustainableselfdevelopment.com. All right, told you it'll be under 30 seconds. So now let's get into the show. All right, so um, welcome everybody. Thank you for tuning in. I'm really excited today to talk to JC Dean, who goes by J- JC. I wanted to have him on uh, for a long time, and uh, finally I managed to actually organize this interview with him. And uh, JC is an author on various uh, fitness related topics. He also has a lot of cool stuff to say about habit formation and um, making this whole fitness game a sustainable uh, lifestyle aspect of our lives, uh, which is something that I like to talk about a lot in the podcast. So it's really cool to have him on. So with that, uh, JC, thank you so much for taking the time. Sure. Thanks for having me. Cool. So um, yeah, I wanted to ask you this off air, but uh, how many for how many years have you been in the industry? Sure. So officially, I guess it's been eight years now. Um, I got in, I started my website in 2008. So I've been running that for 10 years, but uh, I didn't officially start working with individual clients and training until about 2010 when I left. Uh, I was in college, but I also left a a full-time job that I had, and basically I was in transition. I quit a a job because of my uh, college schedule, and then I just was like, all right, I'm been writing about fitness for the last few years, made some connections, uh, got some, you know, got certified, started, uh, started working with people. And then I was just like, well, I'll, you know, I can either go get another job or I can make this fitness thing work. So, so yeah, I've been, been working with individuals and, and taking the training part and coaching part, um, seriously and making that a part of my profession since 2010. Right. And um, out of curiosity, uh, just because um, I know that a lot of people uh, listen to this podcast who are kind of maybe fitness professionals themselves and um, maybe are in that boat that you were in uh, back when you actually decided to dive into this kind of as a as a full time gig for yourself. Like what were what were those initial few things that convinced you that this could be an actual uh, business? Sure. So first thing was I started I started my website in 2008. And when I did that, I kind of just wanted a creative outlet just to just write about like what I know and share my knowledge and and talk about what I was doing for training and nutrition and lessons I've learned and that type of thing. And the reason I started is because at that time, message boards and forums were really, really big. And this was before we had Facebook groups or uh, most social media. So a lot of people were on message boards talking and sharing ideas and I found myself learning a ton and also like giving a lot of advice. And then I met someone through the forum who helped me set up a website and helped me like learn the ins and outs of, you know, basically writing content and building up content. And then I started to just write about my, anything that I was doing, whether it be my training or uh, diets I was experimenting with or 
habits or lifestyle changes or whatever I was doing that pertained to my training and nutrition. And then I, uh, I just continued writing and then um, I started to kind of make some friends in the space through those message boards. And one friend in particular, his name's Raj, Raj Law, Roger Lawson, a uh, really good friend of mine. I met him through a message board. I actually don't remember where, uh, but we soon became Facebook friends and then um, in real life friends. And we met up and hung out and we've been really great friends this whole time. Uh, I also uh, made a connection with Alan Aragon mm. way back uh, at that time before he was very well known. And um, he basically encouraged me to keep writing keep talking about training, keep working with individuals and coaching and um, made really good friends with him. And then just basically through the online community, I had made some connections uh, to other people like him and Raj and just kind of started to get to know people that were working in the space through the internet. And then fast forward uh, a year or two, I went to some fitness conferences, uh, went to the fitness summit in Kansas City, uh, met Alan for the first time, uh, Raj actually went, so uh, hung out with him, met some other people for the first time, and it was incredible because it was just a big networking uh, opportunity, and I ended up meeting a handful of other people through those people I met at the uh, fitness summit, um, one of the other early people that I met through the internet, and I've still never actually met her in real life yet, but I still chat with her, uh, is Lee Peel, and she was really uh, big into the writing scene, the online fitness writing back in like 2010, 2011, and she still does it, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, I would say I would say the biggest thing that pushed me forward into this industry was whenever it was. So it was February of 2010. I was in college, uh, basically working um, working full time and going to school full time, and I had started. You know, I've been I'd gotten a certification. I've been uh, writing about fitness online and and kind of getting more traction in terms of like people seeing my stuff. And I had this situation where I was given a different schedule at work, and it completely conflicted with my school schedule. And so I was put in a situation where I either had to quit school and give up a scholarship or. Uh, quit my job essentially mm-hmm. and so I just decided I was like you know I've got I got money in savings I need to get through the semester once I get through the semester I'll figure it out and then I'll either get another job or whatever but I had a conversation with Alan Aragon over the phone and he was like hey man I think you can really do this I think if you just jump in with both feet and continue writing continue honing your craft continue training people he's like I think you can make this a full-time thing and at the time, I was. It sounded really great, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna totally do it." And uh, I kind of just went into it with blinders on. I really didn't know what I was getting myself into, but I'm really glad I did it because I now have a career. Because Alan kind of pushed me, you know, over yeah. the phone. He was like, "Look, man, I really think you should do this. I believe in you, and you've got a good message, and you can write." And and he just basically gave me a ton of encouragement. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much how I got started. Uh, I quit my job in February just because of the schedule change. And then I just started, I just kept doing what I was doing, started working with people. Um, I actually remember uh, that spring, I actually started doing online coaching and consultations. So this is back in 2010 before online coaching was ever like really a thing at all. Yeah, And... Uh, I just I just started doing. People would write to me and they're like, "Hey, I need help with my training and diet." I'm like, "Okay, well, pay me this amount and I'll give you a diet and training program. And we'll check in every week." So it's kind of like figuring out things before uh, figuring out the online coaching thing before it was even really a thing like it is now. And uh, so yeah, that's in, in a nutshell how I got started. Perfect. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing. And uh, it I, I was just going to ask you um, how if you look back at your approach and kind of the things that you were saying in the beginning or what you were writing about or what type of advice you were giving to people, if you contrast it with what you're talking about now and what you know now, because I mean, you started out in 2010-ish, then, um, you know, like a lot of things have happened uh, in the industry so far, the 
kind of the evidence-based fitness crowd have really has really exploded. And um, but you said that you started out with connections like Alan Aragon, so kind of that tells me that you kind of started off on the right foot uh, to begin with. But do you, when you look back at your work initially, do you see significant changes in kind of your message and how you think about certain things? Yes, totally. So uh, when I first started out, I was. I didn't know that much, right? You know, that was eight yeah. years ago. And I knew way more than the average person just because of my background and uh, what I was interested in and what I was reading and what I was learning about. But what I was writing about then as far as training and nutrition was a little different than what I do now. And I think that's par for the course. I mean, I don't know anyone that starts out doing something and doing the same thing five years later, uh, and if they are, then they probably haven't really learned anything. So I would say the, the biggest thing that has changed is I just have a way more open mind now than I did then because up until that point, uh, I only had a certain level of experience. And most of that experience was uh, through my own, uh, like through my own eyes, like just working on myself. Not necessarily training people, not necessarily uh, dealing with injuries or anything like that. So my experience and my scope was very limited. And that was just because of when I was in junior high and high school, I played sports and I understood weight training and movement through those mediums. And then, so I wrote from that perspective on how to train for size and fat loss and, and improving your performance, that type of thing. But then when I started to work with, an, with individual clients, I started to realize that the general population, the average person, uh, was nowhere near where I was at that point just because they didn't have the previous experience, right? Yeah. And so going through, you know, kind of navigating that world uh, in 2011, I think it was, or 2012, I forget, I get it mixed up. But anyway, I took a trip to New York and I was... Uh, staying with a friend, uh, sleeping on his couch, and I sent a tweet uh, to uh, John Romanello. And at this point, I'd never really talked to him. Uh, I just had followed his writing and followed his stuff online and, and when he used to write for T-Nation. And I basically sent him a tweet and I was like, hey man, I'm going to be in New York from these dates. I uh, would love to like get a beer or coffee or whatever. And uh, when I was traveling in New York, I get uh, I basically get a tech up. Uh, well, we had, let me back up. So he basically sent me a, a message on Twitter, and he was like, "Hey man, be glad to hang out. Uh, let me know when you're in town. You know, we exchange numbers." So anyway, I get to New York, and like the first day, I got there in the evening, stayed stayed the night with my friend, um, woke up on the couch to a text message that came in at like six in the morning, and it was Roman, and he was like, "Hey dude, uh, I, I think you're in the city now. I am going to train a client, but." Uh, we should definitely hang out while you're here. And long story short, I ended up hanging out with him three times that week. Um, we basically got to know each other, uh, drank, ate together, spent time going over like, you know, what we know, yeah. uh, kind of learning, kind of learning about each other's styles. And uh, we also outlined my very first product that I released as a digital product. And that was something I was really interested in doing because I've been coaching, I've been training people. Then I wanted to get into the really get into the online world of selling products. And so Roman was incredibly instrumental in that for me. I mean, we basically sat down at a bar and he was like, okay, dude, what's your hook? What are you going to do? What are you going to talk about? What are you going to write about? How are you going to approach this? And it was a lot of questions that I hadn't really thought of before. And because uh, I was just kind of going by the, you know, flying by the seat of my pants at this point. Yeah. And it was amazing because like he reached out to me and gave me his friendship like pretty selflessly. Like, and to me, that was a huge, uh, it was a huge point in my career, uh, you know, going through the space because, uh, I mean, he was just a super genuine dude. He's, he's a friend to this day, you know, like yeah. I've been to New York multiple times, spent time with him. Um, you know, we have each other's numbers, we text, we talk, um, super cool guy and I'm forever grateful for him. So, uh, yeah, I mean, kind of going, circling back to the original question, you know, like my, my ideas and, and the way I approach things have morphed a ton and they'll probably morph even more, you know, five years down the road from here. But, uh, for the most part, the, you know, kind of going back to what you said, the evidence-based crowd and evidence-based approaches has really grown. And 
I think there's a lot of good in that just for the simple fact that if you go look, look up anything, um, you know, 10 years ago, it was go grab a magazine off the rack and, and look at how bad the advice is. Right. Yeah. Or look at, you know, what the claims are and, you know, the truth behind those claims. But nowadays it's like, just Google something and see how much stuff that comes up. That's just, it's just either incorrect or it's fabricated or straight out lies. Right. Yeah. And so I think the interesting thing about the evidence-based approach kind of turns that upside down and it's like, well, you know, this is the claim. This is what people are saying will happen. And is this, is this true? Does this line up with what we know scientifically? And there are a lot of faults to that view, but it's probably the best working model we have for now. Right. Yeah. And I don't know, like, I think it's really cool what the evidence-based approach in the community has done. Right. They've, they've taken the idea of, well, this is what makes muscle grow or this, what, this is how fat loss works. or this is how macronutrients affect your body composition, whatever. And then they kind of put it under the scope, so to speak, and say, okay, are we making decisions based on some hunch we have? Are we making decisions based on what's in the research? And so, you know, people like Alan Aragon, Lyle McDonald, uh, various other people, Mike Israel, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of them, obviously, you, you know, you know, what I'm talking about, sure, and I'm sure, sure lots of people listening to this know, you know, they're, they're carrying a flag that, you know, that is, is helping people see the truth and helping people see what's going to help them. And, and at the end of the day, like we all want results, right? We all want to make progress and let's face it, you know, life is short, life is limited and we should want to have a shortcut, so to speak. You know, no one wants to do the wrong thing for three years and realize, oh, shit, I've been doing this incorrectly the whole time. And that's why I think the evidence-based uh, approach is really great. And it's also good, too, for helping people move efficiently and move better. Uh, time and time again, when I'm at the gym, I see trainers who are working with clients and having them do things that are just dangerous or unnecessary. And, you know, I don't fault them. It's not like you know, they may not even have access to the information that you and I have access to. They may not even know uh, anything other than what they learned in their certification or what they've seen other trainers doing. So, you know, I don't really fault them. It's just they're doing the best with what they know. Yeah. But the interesting thing about the evidence-based approach is if you, if you see that side of the coin, you can ask questions, ask the right questions, I guess you should say, is, you know, this person wants to work on their, you know, their, their quad strength and, and, build their lower body, well, we could do squats for that. We could do leg press or we could do uh, squat jumps or we could do box jumps. But which one's the safest approach and which one's going to be the most effective? And if you're working with an athlete, box jumps are probably great for explosive speed and power, right? Yeah. But for the average person, it's probably not a very good idea. So uh, <laughs> anyway, wrap wrap this up like, I think the evidence-based. I think the evidence-based thing is really great. It's something that we um, didn't really have access to so much uh, over the, like the last ten, fifteen years. It's always been there, but it's not been so out in the open in terms of uh, a marketing message. I guess you could even call it that. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, and um, just as how you were saying that uh, there were, there's just a lot of misinformation or certainly less over the years, but. Um, still, it's, it's sometimes it's tough to navigate between different sources of, of information. And that, um, I guess, maybe just as a segue to uh, some of the stuff that I wanted to talk about today. Uh, just yesterday, um, in a language class that I was taking, uh, my teacher was asking me in this language that I'm studying uh, what my biggest challenge was on my fitness journey. And, you know, I was mm -hmm. trying to explain it in this language that I'm learning. Um, and, uh, you know, I said a couple of things like learning what matters, what really matters and what doesn't matter, learning that, you know, I can eat out uh, in a restaurant and I can eat something that initially wasn't a part of my plan and still make progress. And I was talking about these, these kinds of things. And if I was to ask you that same question, uh, if you look back at your fitness journey, perhaps even on your career as a fitness professional, but is there one or two like real big challenges that you know, you can look back at that and say that overcoming that was maybe one of the biggest game changers that allow you to, you know, still be in this game, both as a, as a practitioner yourself. I mean, you're, I guess you're still training and you're still on track nutritionally, but you're also a professional. 
Are there some key moments like this that come to mind? Yeah, there are a handful. I would say I would say the first thing that I realized that was uh, a big thing for me was learning about uh, the importance of macronutrients just from a perspective of understanding how they how they work uh, in terms of adjusting your calorie balance and also just helping you to improve body composition right so I remember I remember tracking macros like the first time I ever hired a fitness coach uh, for myself which was back in like back in like 2006 2000 mm -hmm. yeah like 2006 ish and uh, that guy is actually still a really good friend to this day. And um, anyway, he like he started he helped me start to track and count my macros, right? Yeah. And I didn't really understand it uh, up until working with him. And then uh, that became kind of a big focus that that people kind of switched to. They were like, "Don't focus on calories, focus on macros. If you focus on macros, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna hit a certain." percentage of protein, carbohydrates, and fat, and that's going to have a greater impact on body composition. So I think just going back and like learning how that worked for myself and then helping clients understand how that works and uh, why that's important was one of the big things that just was kind of like a light bulb moment for me mm -hmm. back when I was younger and, and thinking about this stuff. And then I would say another thing that really helped uh, my own journey and then also working with clients was was realizing that uh, the idea of labeling food uh, with like a moral connotation uh, was just a disaster and kind of a, a really short-sighted approach. And if you pay attention to, you know, you mentioned language a second ago. If you pay attention to language, the language that you use gives a concept a certain degree of meaning or substance, right? So you can say, like, you can say, oh, I was, you know, I did really, I did really bad on my diet today or I really messed up on my diet today, or I haven't been good. And like those words all, you know, those phrases assume that there's some moral connotation to the, the way that you were eating or the way that you selected your foods or what you chose to consume, right? Yeah. And I found for myself, I kind of caught, got caught in a trap of that like way early on when I was kind of doing my own training and nutrition that I would view foods as good or bad or whatever. And then, and then I would associate them with a good composition or negative, you know, bad body composition, whatever. And then I started to work with clients and I realized that they had a lot of the same hangups. So like one big thing for me was helping people understand that, you know, at the end of the day, food is, is mostly neutral. You know, we can get into the idea and the topics of what foods are ideal for humans to eat and what foods have the, the most micronutrients and, and the foods that are most dense and the foods that are going to be the best for us. And then what are really bad for us? Like we can get in, we can get into all that um, from a nutritional perspective. But just helping people understand that at the end of the day, you know, if your if body composition is a is a major concern of yours, then these foods you want to focus on. And then, but if you decide you want to have some food out, or you want to enjoy something, or you want to indulge, that's not the end of the world. And oftentimes, thinking just changing your thinking about those concepts and how you view food can have a huge impact on your body composition and just your overall well-being and levels of stress. I remember I used to stress out a ton about not being able to track a certain meal or not being able to have a certain meal or not being able to have a certain food because I put a and once I learned to kind of let go of those things and proved it to myself from an experiential perspective, then I realized I could um, like I could let go of those those old ideas, like those negative views. And, and I would say that's one of the things that I've helped a lot of my clients with. And once you get them over that hump, it's pretty neat to see them change and see them view food differently. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, to me, that's just really important because I think, you know, food is so much more than just fuel for our bodies. It's, it's cultural. And uh, I mean, think about it like this, like, for humans, one of the best experiences we can have is the taste and texture of food. Yeah. And even before we had all this industrial, you know, heavily processed food, we could still create meals that were incredibly tasty and, and rich, right? Yeah. And I mean, you can probably relate to this, but I can think back to certain meals that my mom would make 
uh, when I was growing up, like on Sundays. And they were just really, um, it was comfort food, right? It was really warming. It was, it just gave you a lot of satisfaction. And uh, sitting down to eat that food was super comforting. And it wasn't anything that was highly processed or packaged. I mean, it was normal, you know, whole food. Yeah. But the way that she prepared it was really, really great. So, you know, I think we need to move beyond, or I say we, I mean, I just think people in general, like I've helped people, my clients and myself move beyond the idea that food is just fuel. And then also realizing that we don't really necessarily have to have a moral connotation around what we eat. Um, we're not bad if we eat out. We're not bad if we don't stick to our diet 100%. And just the same way, like we're not being good, so to speak, if we never miss a meal I think removing that whole moral, connot- moral connotation is the first step to experiencing more freedom and, and also just getting better results with uh, the diet Yeah, as a whole. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting what you said about um, get food, viewing, food, uh, viewing food just as fuel and uh, as a source of enjoyment. I think over time, the way I, th- I came to think about this is that there's sort of a sweet spot that we want to hit. So... Um, food is is more than more than just fuel i mean i think maybe some for some athlete elite athlete for whom literally uh food serves nothing else but fueling their performance that can be true that food is just fuel but at the same time you know some sometimes uh people contact me and they tell me that they feel guilty because they were trying to get into that mindset that they were just going to eat for physical reasons and they totally get the emotionality out of it and what and and they fail maybe or fall off the wagon and then i'm telling them uh you know food is is a source of pleasure and i don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with that i i don't think that we should strive to get to this point where we derive no enjoyment out of food but at the same time we also don't want to swing to the other extreme where we are treating and comforting us ourselves with food. So there is really kind of this nice sweet spot that we should aim at. Most probably, uh, a lot of your clients are are coming to you with with fat loss goals. I would assume uh, that that's a pretty common goal, uh, especially these days that the weather is slowly warming up. I'm assuming. And uh, you know, before our call a few weeks ago, you shot me over this uh, this book that you wrote, or, or ebook. Uh, what was the title? Yeah, it's called Stay Leaner Longer. Um, so um, it, it's basically, uh, if I had to summarize it in one sentence, it's basically taking you through the fat loss process and kind of the mental kind of challenges and battles that you have to overcome and to maintain your results. I mean, maybe I'm mischaracterizing it a little bit, but that's kind of what I, I've gotten out of this. And um, was this based on your own personal experience or or uh, challenges that you've seen your clients reporting to you, or how did this all uh, play out, the birth of this book? Yeah, so this particular book was a product of sitting down with a friend of mine, Rob Hanley, uh, about three years ago, and we were, in, we were in Croatia, and we had kind of talked about, like, what are the biggest things that my clients struggle with, right? Yeah. And I wanted to write something that was different than anything I've written before. You know, a lot of my content and like my, my other products and eBooks that I've written, it's mostly the how to's and the, 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 what to do, how to do it, why it works. Right. Yeah. So here's how to set up your diet for fat loss. This is why it works. Here's how to, here's how to do it and execute. Right. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like there's nothing wrong with that information and there's a lot of the information out there what it all comes down to is just like just doing the work, right? Yeah. Either you do the work or you don't do the work. Like emotions aside, you either stick to the plan and create the habits and make it work or you don't and you don't get the results you want, right? Yeah. But while that while that's really simple and really sharp, like those ideas, um, that's not the case when you're working with human beings, right? Like everyone has a certain level of discipline that they've been able to implement over their lives Everyone has a different background, different history, and we all tend to internalize things based on our own personal personality or based on our experiences, right? So I wanted to write something that was a little bit different from a psychological perspective. And, you know, just for anyone listening, I'm, you know, I did major in psychology. I don't have any like formal background or anything and like, you know, um, sociological or psychological sciences or anything like that. But 
you know, just reading various uh, books about the mindset that we have and mentality and, and also thinking about how we make decisions and like how our behaviors are set up based on either our environment or based on what we learned. I started to get really interested in, you know, how could I get my clients to stick to their diet? How can I get my clients to focus on the thing that they need to be doing? And so I started brainstorming why clients end up failing or why they give up or um, why they don't stick to something for long enough to finally start getting the returns. And so the book is basically broken up into two sections. The first section is everything that people tend to struggle with. And we all deal with one or more of these uh, issues, and I call them the perils in the book. Um, and there's six of them. And all the feedback that I've gotten from this book over the last few years that it's been out uh, time and time again, like I've just heard people say, wow, this is like you wrote this for me. I could relate to X, Y, and Z, what you wrote about the perils. I could, I could totally see myself saying these things to myself where I can, I can totally relate to blah, 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 whatever. Right. Yeah. And so getting all that feedback made me realize I, I hit a nerve and, um, people could really relate. And to sum it up in a nutshell, I mean, the book is, is, it contains no training information, no diet advice, even though it's called stay lean or longer. Um, there is, you know, and I tell people straight up, like, you're not going to learn about how to lose fat. You're not going to learn about what macronutrient split is you need to eat to, 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 to optimize your performance or improve your body composition. But what you will learn is why you've failed over and over and over and how you can actually overcome those things you've experienced. So to, to give this a little bit of a foundation and not be so abstract, mm -hmm. for instance, um, a couple of the perils that I talk about, like the very first one I talk about is unreal expectations, unrealistic expectations and what they end up doing <clears throat> excuse me, what they end up doing to a person, right? Yeah. So let's take a really quick example. You go on Instagram and you're following your favorite fitness person and they decide to do a client spotlight and they show a, cra a crazy dramatic transformation. And since humans are very visual, we see things, we process things visually and a lot of people actually learn best from a visual perspective. So they see this before picture, they see this after picture, they see this person who is overweight and then they see someone 30 pounds later with a picture to the right and now they have abs and they're smiling and uh, there's all these subtle messages going on, right? Yeah. So they see this and, and in their head they, they come up with this idea of like, oh wow, like if I just do X, Y, and Z, I can have the same transformation. And sometimes that is 100% true, but a lot of times it's not. And what happens is, you know, when you see the, that before and after picture, you don't know exactly what that person went through. You don't know what the circumstances were. You don't know what they were dealing with. You don't really know anything about that person. And, you know, I use transformation uh, pictures in my marketing because it works. It helps people see what's possible. But one thing I do try to be very open and honest about is, you know, you are not that person, right? Yeah. And you may see things in a certain way that maybe you can have a similar transformation. There's no denying that you can't. But you also have to have the realistic expectation about what's going to go into doing that work. And where I think a lot of people go wrong and we can blame, we can blame fitness professionals for marketing in this way is we tend to oversimplify the process and, and make it sound really, really easy. You know, and one thing I always like to tell people is transformation is a simple process, but it's not easy. And so there's a huge difference in those, the way you, you phrase that, right? So it's simple, like to us, we understand what, you know, what's going on. You need to, you basically need to eat in a certain way. You need to track your macros. You need to, you need to be really on point with your diet and you need to not miss a training session. And you need to train hard. You need to get enough sleep. You know, all these things are actually very simple. But when it comes down to actually executing and doing it, it's, it's not that easy. Um, especially if you haven't been doing it or you, uh, you don't have that discipline built up over time. So the very first thing I mentioned is unrealistic expectations. People tend to think uh, they can achieve a lot more in a short period of time, and it creates these ideas that um, ultimately will backfire. Yeah. Second, second peril is uh, it's called what's the cheat code and searching for shortcuts. And really simple thing here is we are conditioned to go look for the shortcut. 
we, we are conditioned to go look for the easy route. That's why supplement industry, especially the diet and fat loss supplement industry, is multiple billions of dollars a year because people would rather pay $90 for a bottle of pills than pay uh, 10 bucks for a book on Amazon that will give them everything they need to do from training, nutrition, everything, and actually implement that because the bottle of pills is a way easier option, right? Yeah. It's way less friction. But the problem is, is the more you search for those shortcuts, the more you try that out, the further you delay the results, right? But just as human beings, we're, we're conditioned to do that. We're conditioned to look for the short road. Like we want things to be easy. Um, another peril is information overload. You know, now is worse than it's ever been. All you gotta do is open your phone and you have a ton of information at your disposal. The problem is though is the more information you gather, the, the less you actually tend to do with it because you become paralyzed from a standpoint of what do you do? If you have 10 different, you know, JCs or 10 different Ables or 10 different uh, Romans telling you online, this is what you need to be doing. What do you, who do you listen to? Who do you trust? Absolutely. And so this leads into the next uh, issue, which I call shiny object syndrome, where you you get distracted over and over and over. Oh, I'm, I'm going to try this workout for two weeks. If I don't really see any results, then I'm going to try something else. And what happens is that person starts out good for the first few days and then they fall off the wagon for two weeks and then they say, oh, well, that program didn't work. When in reality, they didn't do anything. Yeah. They just worked out for two days and then they took the, the next two weeks off. And then they go looking for the next one and then they look for the next one. And then six months later, they look the exact same. They haven't made any changes and then they feel really bad about themselves. And then that leads into what I call the negative feedback loop. So you do all this stuff over and over and you never get results and then you just look back at your your failures and then you just automatically think, well, I'm just a failure. I'm just going to keep screwing up. And then, um, and then I have some more stuff that I talk about in the first section of the book, but basically those are the issues that people tend to deal with. And then the second part of the book, I, I basically give a blueprint on how to not fall for all that stuff. And um, I give you a, uh, like a, a strategy and a framework and I talk a lot about habits and why habits are really important and what habits are. And, you know, to, to this day, like, we use habits in our daily language, like, oh, like, you know, I can't quit smoking. It's a bad habit. Yeah. Or I always interrupt people. Like, it's just a bad habit. You know, there's all these, there's all these like, things that we use, but we don't necessarily understand what a habit is, right? We, we, we realize, like, on a surface level, it's, it's this thing we do all the time, but we don't necessarily think about what habits are and, and how to actually change them and create new ones to improve our lives. And so I, I use a second section of the book to really dive into that and help people understand that. And then, um, I mean, the, the second part of the book is pretty much all about habits and like how to, how to implement them and how to deal with replacing bad habits. And then I, um, I follow it up with, you know, basically like a, like an exercise of how to figure out if what you're working on is worth working on. And if it's, if you don't have a big enough reason why you're doing something, like if you don't have a big enough reason as to why you want to lose 50 pounds, then you're probably going to fail. And so I help people dig a little deeper and figure out why they actually want to do that. And then once we create a big enough why, and I do this with my clients too, once we determine a big enough reason why that we want to do something, then that becomes the pain that we want to avoid. Mm -hmm. And it really kind of sucks that we we choose as humans, like we would rather avoid pain than pursue pleasure. Um, and I didn't mean that long term. I don't mean that short term because we always pursue pleasure in some form. Um, but that's usually like really small stuff like, um, you know, grabbing the ice cream instead of cooking a meal that would be healthy for us. You know, that gives us an instant fix or looking at our phone every 10 minutes instead of focusing on something that we need to work on. Yeah. But when it comes to like creating goals, like we would rather avoid the pain and work against avoiding that pain. Um, or work towards avoiding that pain than trying to have, you know, a six pack abs on the beach. Um, yeah. And, you know, kind of sucks, but that's just the way we, way we work. So I hope people understand why and then how to structure and set up your life and your training and your nutrition and, and also like build those habits that you need to have in place to stick to the process of doing what you need to do instead of just saying, okay, I want to have abs on the beach in six months. Now I got to figure it out. Yeah. 
No, it, that's amazing. And, and uh, definitely what, what, when you said that people who read that said that as if you were just talking to them, I definitely, when I read this through, I, I was nodding a lot and just reminded me a lot of my earlier uh, kind of trials and tribulations. And I was for my first uh, initial failed tri trials to uh, try to get down to six-pack level leanness. Um, you know, it's really interesting that Uh, the, the cheat code part and the information overload and also the shiny object syndrome. I think those all fundamentally come down to something uh, that especially guys like myself and, you know, who are not genetically very gifted in this game. Um, I guess there's just, even when we know a fair amount, there's just a small part of us that is always hoping to find that thing that we can tweak in our training and nutrition that will allow us to all of a sudden wake up looking like whoever, a Matt Ogus or a Jeff Side or, you know, so, someone like that. And uh, until we actually get out of this mindset, we are pretty much just doomed to fail. And, you know, it's, it, it's funny you mentioned supplements. I think it doesn't just manifest itself in uh, trying to look for supplements as kind of the magic bullet. But even when someone looks up the, the workout regimen or the exercise recommendations of some guy who has a really impressive physique, they're still kind of in that mindset that, okay, if I'm just learning from this guy how to rotate my arm while I'm doing a chest cable fly or something, then my physique is going to explode to the next level. And yeah, I, I think the way you just laid this out is, is just really incredible. And the other thing that really hit home for me is kind of figuring out your why, which kind of sounds like this very woo-woo personal development kind of concept. But at the same time, a lot of guys fall into this trap of going through, for example, a cutting phase for 12 weeks. They're really crushing it. They, they uh, rock on and everything is on point. But at the, at the end, when they arrive, they just have these expectations of what's going to happen. And a lot of people are kind of not necessarily in it for the wrong reasons, but are in it for reasons that are just not reflecting reality, like getting laid or whatever, having this amazing success and being on the beach and having all these eyeballs from other people. Those things just are not really happening. So yeah, I think uh, just just the way you outlined it, I think a lot of people will feel like that you're talking to them um, through this. And with that, uh, I would be curious, like um, as you were writing this and you were thinking about this concept, were there any particular ones that you uh, particularly fell for again and again when you were going through your initial stages of transforming your body? Yeah, sure. So the the biggest one i fell for was probably the infor information overload oh yeah was probably the infor information overload and so i've like struggled with these things but even to this day information overload is a is a one of the biggest issues and not so much with fitness or nutrition stuff for me anymore not to say i know everything but just because i i understand it enough to realize like what's bullshit and what's useful yeah But in the beginning, information overload was a, a big issue. And I mean, this was like 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, that, that time frame. And that was before we had such a wealth of information at our fingertips. There was no Instagram, there was no Snapchat. There was, you know, Facebook was online, but it was not what it is today. Um, finding fitness stuff was still really easy, but it came through message boards and various other portals instead of uh, apps and the way that, you know, things that we do now. But yeah, I mean, that was my biggest thing that I struggled with from a, from a perspective of transformation. And it was mostly because I was always second guessing what I was doing. You know, is my, is my coach telling me to do the right thing? Do I trust him? Well, I do trust him, but this other person says their program is the best thing ever. And then I would, you know, I would kind of get lost in that for a while. And then I would end up saving all this information. Like, Like, in fact, um, you know, I would, I would have like word documents and bookmarks, like tons of shit that I've saved yeah. that I haven't, like, I just wouldn't open again. Right. Yeah. But I would save it because it was like, Oh, I may, I may need this later. Yeah. And then, and in the case I would find something new, I would read, 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 and then I would save it, but I wouldn't actually do anything with it. Right. Yeah. And, um, this is even worse now from an information perspective. I mean, it's, it's like, it's insane. And, and as somebody who's a content creator and somebody who writes and writes with a purpose on getting people's attention and educating them and helping them make a decision to do something uh, with their training and nutrition based on like my information, it's really, really difficult sometimes to, uh, 
uh, write in a way that helps people understand like what they need to do, right? What I mean by that is like, you know, someone can either land on one of my articles that is 3,500 words and they can read it and absorb it and get what they need. Or they can open up Instagram and read some caption with some photo of, you know, a dude or a girl doing a mirror selfie talking about like honestly the, the stupidest, most inane thing that has that makes no difference um, to the world on transforming your body. But it's a short caption. It's like hundred words or whatever. Yeah. And they can go to that and then they can feel good for a moment. They're like, oh man, like I'm on the right track. I'm doing the right thing. This person said I am. Or whatever. Yeah. And and it's really it's really a struggle um, as a content creator, but also just like from a from a user's perspective, right? Like getting the results we want is going to take work in some form or fashion, right? It's going to take work as far as like reading and understanding the material, getting in the gym and actually training hard. Um, and it's always easy. It's always easy to pick an easier option just because there's so many pieces of information out there. But a lot of times that information just doesn't give us what we need, right? Absolutely. And one way I struggle with this now is uh, not necessarily in the fitness space, but like when it comes to like material that I am studying or learning, uh, for instance, you know, that pertains to my business, you know, there are a hundred million different things that I can read and study, but what it comes down to is picking one or two things, studying it and then implementing it. And ultimately that's the name of the game, right? Like get your focus narrow as possible, nail the things that you need to nail and then cut out 90, 98% of the rest of the stuff. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's actually really funny that you mentioned that because um, yeah, j just like you said, even in the when someone wants to become a you know a business owner, content creator, you know, uh, there are many different approaches. You know, I just read um, last year or the year before, I read this book, Deep Work, from Cal Newport, which is basically the antithesis of um, of a lot of the things that successful content marketers and kind of business coaches and, and people, Ramit Sethi or Neil Patel, a lot of what these guys are talking about, it's in many ways, it's the complete opposite of what they're saying. And the funny thing is, is that in many, many cases, these people, like I know, for example, Ramit Sethi and Cal Newport are good friends. They're in many ways saying things that are contrary to one another. So which one do you actually implement? And, and it very much is similar to what you need to do in fitness. Basically, at some point, you need to uh, stick to one recommendation or one piece of advice, even realizing that that might not be the absolute best thing that you could do in an absolute sense. But if you stick to it, it will be guaranteed much better if you program hop or in this other case, I don't know, strategy hop. It's really interesting how that works out. Um, so... Another thing I, I wanted to ask you about is um, kind of to transition. Well, we didn't discuss the, the fat loss side of things in great detail, but one thing that I've uh, heard you writing about uh, multiple times is the, how do you call it, the former fat boy syndrome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, would, you, would you mind elaborating on that a little bit? Because I, I found your perspective really interesting on that one. Sure. So it's kind of funny. Uh, when I wrote that article, I don't know, I think it's like 2009 or something. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote it from a perspective of like my own personal struggles, right? Yeah. And what I think is really interesting is, so when I was growing up, I was I was never obese. Like I was never to the point of obesity, but I was really chunky growing up. And so much to the point that it, it, it affected me negatively. Like I, I knew I was fatter than all the other kids, right? Yeah. And it had a huge impact on me and it made me see myself in a way that um, I, I just didn't like myself, right? And it was like, it was especially noticeable like during the summers. I mean, right. I, I would like swim, I would like swim with a shirt on, you know, and while all yeah. my friends, all my friends like had their shirts off, you know, yeah. and I was super self-conscious about it. And I remember as a kid telling my mom, like, like, I don't want to be fat anymore. Like, I want to go on a diet. And, you know, my mom obliged and she was like, okay, well, here's a diet that I got from the doctor. And it's a food combination diet. And you need to eat three or four meals a day. And every meal needs to have this food and this food and this food. And I remember, you know, having the piece of paper in my hands. And I'm like, okay, I can do this. And like, the first meal was like, 
I don't remember, like like a piece of grapefruit and a can of tuna or something. And I popped open the can of tuna and it was just like I gagged. Like I, I hate the smell of canned tuna. I cannot, I just can't stomach it. I hate it. And I remember like trying to eat the tuna. I don't know, I was like 10 or 11 and I was like, I can't do this shit. And I remember like starting the diet and then two minutes later being like, okay, I can't do this. This sucks. And, but I still hated like how I looked. Right. Yeah. And even like growing up, I would, uh, I would buy clothes that were like two times the size that they needed to be. And my shirts would like hang down to my knees Mm -hmm. and my, um, you know, I would, I would buy like, you know, like I would get, I would wear athletic uh, shorts and those shorts would like hang down past my knees. And the reason I wore these big clothes is because like I thought it was covering up the fact that I was fat, right? Yeah. And so this carried on up until, you know, through my adolescence, like like probably until like I was 13, 14-ish. And then I started to get active in athletics. And then that was what really changed my body because I was active, uh, you know, going through puberty, obviously, but I was really active and, excuse me, and, and started to you know, train and work out and run and play sports. And so by the time I got into high school, I was a pretty decent athlete. I was, you know, starting um, the football team and just like, you know, it was a really big part of my identity. And I lost a lot of my baby fat or whatever you want to call it, but I still was like kind of on the, on the chunky side. Like I wasn't overweight. I wasn't like super fat. But I also didn't look like my peers, right? I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I wasn't, like a lot of my peers were just really skinny, right? They, they grew up skinny and naturally had abs. And like, I remember being in the locker room and I was like, man, my body doesn't look like theirs. And, and then, it, and like, I kind of, I kind of struggled with that, you know, on and off for that period of time all the way through school. And then I got into college and I went through this, um, like I was still working out, I was still training, still lifting weights, like I, from, like I was still working out, I was still training, still lifting weights, so like I fell in love with weight back, I liked that experience. Um, I didn't actually really love playing football, like it was fun, and it was like the camaraderie was great, and all that was really, really like good for me from a from an athletic perspective, but I, uh, I really enjoyed the weightlifting aspect, and like if, if I could go back in time, like I probably would focus way more on training, and like maybe even try to get into like powerlifting or something. But anyway, like I, that was a huge point in my life that started me off on this journey. But anyway, so when I got into college, make a really long story short, I made a bunch of friends really fast that first semester, freshman year. And we, you know, we would meet each other in the gym. We'd see each other in passing on campus and, and um, we all like to work out. And so um, every year, these guys that were older than me, they're like, hey, we're gonna have a best body competition. We're all gonna put 50 bucks in. Uh, we're going to have first place through third place. Uh, whoever wins is going to take home some money. And we're all going to see who can get as ripped and shredded as possible by December. So this is like so this is like mid-September when we're all talking about this. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm like sitting in like a Denny's or a Waffle House at like 1030 at night with all these guys like stuffing our face full of food. And we're all talking about this. And I was like, and like I remember sitting there like grabbing like this huge amount of fat on my stomach. Mm-hmm. And I, and uh. I'm like, I'm like, this is my first time and I'm actually going to like get in shape and like see, see what's underneath, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, long story short, middle of December, I've lost like 35 pounds. I am leaner than I've ever been in my life. I'm seeing this physique that I never knew that I had. And it was just the most amazing like experience that I ever, ever had from a, from a physical transformation perspective. Mm-hmm. And I got second place, took home like 300 bucks. Nice. And it was amazing. Like it was the, it was the most like confidence boosting, ego boosting thing I could ever do. And it made me realize that I was in control of my outcomes. And that gave me a really positive outlook on what I could do. And that ultimately is what set me down this path of getting into this industry. But going back to the article that I wrote about former fat boy syndrome was even though I was really lean and like all these people around me were like, holy shit, dude, like when I saw you, start out on this journey you were this chubby like ex-football player and now you're like this really lean like fitness person yeah and i remember like being in the gym like a couple weeks after the competition and like 
that like the guys are in there, they're walking in and they're like, dude, man, like you still look amazing. Like you need to maintain this. You need to like, you need to nail this. Like just, just keep improving, like keep building your body. And, and it was so, it was such a good feeling. But when I would look at myself, like I'd get out of the shower and I'd like look at myself and like, I still saw this like fat person, right? Mm-hmm. Still saw this chubby person. And that stuck with me for a long time. And then I, um, I ended up writing about it, you know, called the former fat boy syndrome where, you know, there's two aspects, like you get into good shape and you realize that you're in good shape and all these people are giving you the feedback that helps you understand that you've made this transformation, but you, um, you still see the fat person in the mirror, but then you also, uh, struggle with, um, improving your body further. So what I mean by that is, uh, the pretty much every former fat boy, like, you know, I don't mean that in like a, a condescending or a negative tone. I'm just like, I'm just saying, you know, like any person that's previously been overweight is going to have a negative idea or a negative feeling when it comes to gaining weight. And the biggest thing I struggled with was I got to eat more. I've got to eat more to gain muscle. Like I've got to put on some more size, you know, I've got to, you know, I want to improve my body. And it was such a struggle to make myself eat more because my biggest fear was going back to that former fat boy self. I didn't want to go back to that place. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be there again. Right. And so I wrote the article and I got a ton of feedback and it was amazing. Even to this day, people are like, wow, you know, that's how I found you. And that's how I continue to follow you. And, you know, I could totally relate to that former fat boy syndrome idea because I'm a former fat boy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was really cool. And, and then even men's health a couple of years later, like reached out to me and they're like, Hey, you know, would you want to do an interview? And, and we want to talk about this, you know, body image stuff. And, um, they even like, it's funny. Like they say that I coined the term, like, I don't know, it's, it's kind of funny. It's kind of a claim to fame, I guess. But, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so like, I, I don't know. It was just, it was just an interesting experience. And like, I, I just wrote about it, you know, and people ended up, uh, you know, really gravitating towards it and they really resonated with it and it made them, it, it gave them hope too, you know? And like, that's one thing I really enjoy about it. Cause like guys will come to me and they're like, you know, I'm really struggling with the fact that I was fat growing up and I got in really good shape. And now like, I'm scared to like, let, I'm, I'm scared to like eat. And in fact, I had a guy through Instagram, um, send me a message a couple days ago. Uh, he read one of my posts about like building muscle and bulking up. And he was like, you know, he was like, I, I'm, I'm so afraid of adding any body weight at all that I constantly self-sabotage. You know, I, my trainer, and he's telling me this, you know, he's like, my trainer wants me to eat this amount, but I'm afraid to because I see the scale jump up a pound or two and I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm just going to be super fat again. And that's such an irrational thought. You know, you're not going to regain all the 30 or 40 pounds you lost in a week's period of time but humans are not rational beings, right? Like we mostly go with our emotion. Um, we think, we, we like to think we're rational and some of us can be rational, but for the most part, we're not objective. We can't be objective to ourselves. Um, we can't uh, look at ourselves from an outside perspective and, and say, oh, this is good for us or, oh, this is bad for us because those emotions will override it and say, you know what? I saw the, I saw the scale jump up two or three pounds. I got to go back and start eating at a deficit again. And guys do this, um, probably it's probably a surprise to a lot of people it might be a surprise to people listening to this that you know this happens for guys a lot more than we think yeah guys just don't tend to talk about it right um like i rarely see guys in my facebook group i have like um i have a private facebook group with about a thousand of my regular readers and it's really supportive and i very rarely see any men talk about their issues with like a fear of weight gain um and i think it's just mostly due to just because like they just don't talk about it, right? Yeah. yeah. But um, a woman might come in and say, "Hey, I'm doing, you know, like recently, um, I released a, a free um, butt builder program for women." And woman, a woman came in. She's like, "Hey, I'm like struggling. Like the scale's up two pounds in the last five weeks, and I'm really like worried that I'm just gonna like, you know, I'm really worried about the weight gain." And then, you know, I, I talked to her a little bit. And I'm like, "Okay, look, like, well, are you tracking your measurements? Are you tracking your food? Did you eat something the last few days that maybe have made you bloat a little bit?" And, and then she's like, yeah, actually, I went out to eat with my friends and that's when I stepped on the scale the next day and, you know, the food was really salty, so I'm, I'm actually more bloated than I normally am. And it's one of those things that, you know, like, I think men just struggle with, but it's kind of silent, right? Yeah. And, and it's just because men don't really talk about this shit. Like, men don't talk about their emotions or talk about how they don't want to feel fat or whatever. Yeah. And um, 
but anyway, I just thought it was really interesting that, you know, a lot of men could, could relate to that. And like privately men have sent me emails and they're like, you know, your former fat boy syndrome, like was so amazing. Like it really helped me understand like where I was struggling and what I needed to do to fix it and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. No, I, I think, yeah, the, it's, I, I think more people can, uh, can resonate with, with that than what we would initially think. And yeah, I can definitely even myself, uh, relate to that whenever, I would finish a, a cutting period and uh, would get lean finally. And yeah, there was that always that initial haze where I just didn't want to, I just didn't want to let go of the hard earned results that I finally achieved. And I guess there's a time and a place for just enjoying what you achieved and maintaining that and over time realizing that, you know, if you want to improve even, even further, then, you know, you should probably go in a muscle building phase and that will accompany some fat gain, but also probably there's some, power in recognizing the fact that, you know, uh, building muscle, gaining weight and accepting some fat gain in the process doesn't mean, you know, blowing up into a, a fat mass and just dissipating and letting all your uh, results that you worked for dissipate overnight. So yeah, yeah, very cool. Uh, JC, I think I kept you up for a good while. And um, I think, uh, I think we managed to drop a lot of uh, cool concepts and uh, knowledge bombs for people. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, maybe just let our listeners know where they can find this book that you talked about and uh, any of the resources that you would like them to check out. Sure. So best place to find me is just jcdfitness.com. That's the best place to find me. Um, you can also find that book at staylearnerlonger.com. But you should be able to find everything from me just on my main website. Uh, another place you can find me is just uh, JC Dean on, on Instagram, J-C-D-E-E-N. Uh, I'm pretty active there. And uh, if you want to join my Facebook group, it's totally free. Just get in touch with me. Perfect. All right. Uh, JC, thank you so much once again for doing this. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode and liked what you heard. And if you did, then I think you definitely love our SSD training and nutritional course that we recently put out with Burge Fagerli. This program not only contains a 12-week phasic training program that you can use to time efficiently and safely build the best body you can, but also gives you four plus hours of video lectures about managing your nutrition and lifestyle to not only look good, but feel and perform optimally. And besides this, you will also be getting some really awesome bonuses like Berge Fagerli's Myo Reps and Zero Carb ebook. So if this sounds interesting to you, then go ahead and check out sustainableselfdevelopment.com. And of course, to not miss out on future episodes like this, subscribe to the podcast and you'll be up to date on everything we'll be putting out. So thank you for hanging around up until now and see you next time.